The central nervous system has all these four regions or four parts, main parts, and if we start making sections, this is what we will see. We will see that inside these structures, we have two different areas. Some areas are gray, darker, and some areas are white. And we call them gray matter and white matter. If we make a section at this level, we'll see that outside, in the outer part of the brain, is gray. And we call that gray matter. Or this part that is outside is called the cortex or the gray mat of the gray matter. And in the middle part, in the central part, is white, and we call it white matter. Now there are some small areas in the very central part of the brain that are gray, and we call them brain nuclei. And if we make this section at the level of the spinal cord, we will get a different thing. In this case, the gray matter and white matter are organized in a different way. The gray matter is inner, and the white matter is outermost. That's the difference of organization of gray matter and white matter. But what is the gray matter and what is the white matter? What is the composition of them? Gray matter contains the neuron cell bodies and non-myelinated axons, short non-myelinated axons of some neurons. And the white matter contains myelinated axons. That's the reason of the color. The white is because of the presence of myelin, myelinated axons. Next week when we do the brain labs, the anatomy, we're gonna bring some models, we're gonna bring some human brains that we have in, um, in the cadaver room, we're gonna bring them here. And some of them are sectioned like this. So you can see the gray matter, white matter inside and see all these parts. Now I say that the brain retains uh, the inside cavity because initially it was a neural tube. And those spaces, those cavities, are what we call the ventricles. And in this case, this space, these ventricles, are filled with fluid. And we're gonna call that fluid CSF, or cerebral spinal fluid. What else? Well, that tube is in the central part of the brain and also in the central part of the spinal cord because if you go back to this picture of the spinal cord, you will see the central cavity or spinal canal here. That's very small, but it's still, it retains that space, central cavity in the spinal cord. And who produces those, I mean, th that fluid? We study that in neuroglia, the ependymal cells are the ones that produce the CSF. They create this fluid and they are lining all these ventricles. There are two lateral ventricles. In each hemisphere there is one, right and left cerebral hemisphere. 
a projection of the ventricular system or the ventricles is seen here. Everything in blue are the ventricles. From a frontal anterior view, we can see these two lateral ventricles, one and two here. In the very center of the cerebral hemisphere. Then we see the third ventricle. There is a third ventricle which is located central, in the central part, the midline. And the cerebral aqueduct is a very fine duct that connects to the fourth ventricle, which is at the level posterior, at the level of the pons and cerebellum. That's from a frontal view, but from a lateral view, we see it like this. The lateral ventricles have this C shape. The third ventricle and the fourth ventricle is in, in the back here, next to the cerebellum and pons. This may be hard to figure in the space. We have a mo some models that show the ventricle shape. They are like plastic models made of uh, the mold of these ventricles. And actually the way they do this is inject, using human brains, they inject a resin, a plastic solution inside the space of ventricles, and they get solid, and they get rid of all the brain tissue, the nervous tissue, and you have that mold of the, uh, of the ventricle shape. Where you can see all the parts, lateral ventricle, third ventricle, fourth ventricle, and move it into space to figure it out. So two lateral ventricles are connected to the third ventricle, which is central, by two small holes. And as you know, foramen means hole. There are two interventricular foramen that connect the lateral ventricle to the third ventricle. And the third ventricle is connected to the fourth by the cerebral aqueduct. Those are the components. If you notice, all the components of the ventricular system are in bold letters highlighted here. The cerebral aqueduct connects to the fourth ventricle and from the fourth ventricle it continues with the central canal of the spinal cord. Now there is fluid inside but that fluid will not remain there. That fluid circulates. It is circulating. It has a specific system of circulation. It is made inside the ventricles and from the ventricles it comes out. It comes out through two openings or apertures that we call lateral aperture and median aperture. And where they go? They go to circulate around the brain. It surrounds the whole brain in a space that we call subarachnoid space. And we'll see why it's called subarachnoid because arachnoid is the name of one of the meninges that are membranes that cover and protect the brain. We'll see that when we get to the meninges part, what is and where is that subarachnoid space. So the main part of the, one of the parts of the brain is the cerebrum. And the cerebrum contains two cerebral hemispheres. These cerebral hemispheres count for about 80, 83% of the mass of the whole brain. And there are some terms here to remember. Gyri, which means the ridges. Sulci, that's a term that we use for naming the shallow grooves 
that are in between the ridges, which are called the gyri. Gyra and sulci are plural words. The singular word for this uh, is for gyri, gyrus, and for sulci, sulcus. Instead of the I with a U.S. And the third term, term are fissures. Fissures stands for deep groups. Some of these groups are shallow, they are called sulci, and some of them are deep, and then we call them fissures. There are two main, the longitudinal fissure and the transverse fissure. Longitudinal, it's in between the two hemispheres, and the transverse in between the cerebrum and the cerebellum. You're going to see a couple of pictures of how these are located. So here we see in different colors the structure of the cerebrum or cerebral hemispheres. A piece has been taken here in order to describe all these terms. This ridge is called a gyrus. Every ridge that you see is a gyrus. It's called gyrus. Then the shallow grooves, sulcus. And a deep groove, a deep sulcus, is called a fissure. If you follow it, it goes deeper than the sulcus. You can see the difference of cortex, gray matter, and white matter. And in different colors, we see the different areas of the cerebral hemispheres that we call lobes. Some of these gyri are named specifically, like this one, postcentral gyrus. And it's all this, all this part, all this gyrus. It's called postcentral gyrus. And the precentral gyrus is all this. And what's in between? A sulcus that is called central sulcus. In the same way, there's another sulcus here called lateral sulcus, which is between the temporal lobe and the parietal lobe. Parietal and temporal lobe. There's no specific lines to separate this parietal, temporal, and occipital. Sometimes we make like an estimation, this is the point. The only thing that it's clear to separate these lobes is the central sulcus, which separates the frontal lobe from the parietal lobe. And that's what we marked in the picture. In a real human brain, seeing from the top, we can see some of these things. First, the longitudinal fissure. Fissure is a deep sulcus, a deep groove. As we see here, this longitudinal fissure is actually separating both hemispheres the right hemisphere from the left hemisphere. And we can see the parietal lobe and frontal lobe separated by the central sulcus, which is here. This sulcus is actually not straight. It follows the shape or curves of the gyrus, the precentral gyrus and postcentral gyrus.
So all these sulcus or sulci will divide the hemisphere in five lobes, frontal, parietal, temporal, occipital, and there's one that is called the insula. If you notice the names, they match with the names of the bones, and actually they match the location. So the frontal bone, that's where the frontal lobes are. Parietal bone, that's where the parietal lobe is. Temporal with the temporal lobe. Occipital in the back, occipital lobe. And that's how we see the separation of these lobes. The frontal, parietal, occipital, temporal lobe. And in this picture we see something else that we describe like a fissure, and this is the transverse cerebral fissure, and we said it's located between the cerebrum and the cerebellum. It's a deep sulcus, a deep group. What is the insula? The insula is the fifth lobe that cannot be seen from outside. If you get the brain and you move it around, you only see four lobes. In order to see the fifth lobe, the insula, you have to do this. You have to pull apart this temporal and frontal lobe and get in the lateral sulcus. And deep inside, you will see the insula. How this happens and why is in there? Because during the development, all these cerebral hemispheres develop by growing and growing, and the cranial cavity is not that big. So at some point, the cranial cavity stops growing, but then the brain cells and all the tissue inside keeps growing, and there's no other way that it starts folding over itself. And so that insula is like a reflection, like a folding that remains inside and covered by the frontal lobe and temporal lobe. So in order to see the insula, we have to make this retraction like we see in that picture. And we will see the insula deep in the lateral sulcus. Some of the models that we have, they show you that insula, they did this, so we can have an idea where this fifth lobe is. So this is a description of some of the terms and pictures that we've been seeing, like the central sulcus is separating Precentral gyrus, which belongs to the frontal lobe, and postcentral gyrus, that belongs to the parietal lobe. There is a sulcus called parietal occipital that separates the occipital and parietal lobes, which is not so clear sometimes. And the lateral sulcus that separates the temporal lobes from the parietal lobes and frontal lobes. It determines actually the shape of the temporal lobe. And each hemisphere will have the regions that we described. It contains cerebral cortex, which is gray matter, white matter, internal, and basal nuclei, groups of gray matter located in the very central part of the cerebrum. Cerebral cortex, gray matter. This is the place where the bodies of neurons are. There's millions of neurons here. The bodies of the neurons are here in the cerebral cortex. And all the cortex works 
interconnected. All the lobes are interconnected. Every single region of the cerebrum will provide some input, and as a result, we have all these functions. We have a sense of awareness, a consciousness. We perceive, we move our body and muscles. We communicate, we keep memories, we understand. Understanding is a very complex process that involves many different regions and a lot of neurons uh, interconnected and working together. Neuron cell bodies, that's the composition of the cerebral cortex, dendrites, of course, neuroglia, blood vessels, but there is no axons in the gray matter of the cortex. And that's about 40% mass of the brain. It's a lot. All conformed by neurons. Now, the cerebral cortex is divided in areas. And the different areas of the cerebral cortex perform different functions. Like, there are some areas which are called motor areas that control voluntary movements. That's the place where we begin the, the, the order for moving a muscle. Sensory areas, which are the places or the neurons that receive the input from all senses, sensory receptors on the skin, special senses, eyes, ears, and many areas which are called association areas because it's not clear exactly what they do, but what we know is that they were connecting different lobes and different areas of the brain. Each hemisphere controls the opposite side of the body, meaning my right cerebral cortex controls most of the left side of my body. Each hemisphere is specialized in some function. That's what we call lateralization. And the consciousness or conscious behavior, like when we wake up in the morning and we are doing things, active and consciously doing things, that means that the entire cerebral cortex is working. And there are different studies that are made to assess this. And we can see in studies how different areas of the cortex are activated, but in general, everything is active as long as you are conscious. Some of these motor areas are seen here, described, like, and we've seen some of them. There is an area called the primary motor cortex, and all these belongs to what we call motor areas. There is one area, which is the primary motor cortex. That is located in the precentral gyrus. That gyrus, that ridge, in front of the central sulcus. There is another area called premotor cortex, which is anterior to the precentral gyrus. The third is called Broca's area. It's inferior to the premotor area. And one more called frontal eye field anterior to the premotor cortex and superior to the Broca's area. So there are four areas that are considered motor areas. And here, let's find all these um, areas. First of all, primary motor cortex is the red part. 
all these central sulcus divided in precentral and postcentral. So all this part will be the motor primary motor cortex. Then where is the premotor cortex? Right in front. The premotor cortex is this ridge here. Where is the Broca's area? The Broca's area is outlined by dashes, all this. And finally, the frontal eye field, which is this area right here. Premotor cortex. So all these four are the motor areas meaning that neurons are located here, they control movements, movements of all the muscles, voluntary actions to move the muscles. Some brief description of each of these areas. The primary motor cortex contains neurons that are called pyramidal cells. They're very large neurons. They connect to muscles, that actually send the axon down the spinal cord, connecting the second neuron, the spinal cord, and then to the muscles. The axons travel in a tract that is called pyramidal tract or corticospinal. And there is something, there is a special distribution of these neurons in that primary motor cortex. That's called somatotopy which means that we can map, we know exactly in what part of the cortex are neurons that control the muscles of the leg, the muscles of the arm, the muscles of the neck. And that is called homunculus. It's like a little man that you can draw on the surface of the cerebral cortex as we see here. The red is showing the motor cortex, the primary motor cortex and you can see the different parts of the body, like a big face, small foot, a big hand. Why we map it like that? That means that there is more area of neurons, more neurons that control the movements of the hand than the number of neurons that control movements of the foot. Because we need a lot of precise movement, accuracy with the hand than with the foot. The face. There's a lot of facial muscles here for the facial gestures. And there are more neurons that control that part. And there is a very small area for the trunk because we don't need many neurons to move the muscles of the trunk. We don't do much things with the trunk. We just move it, flexion, extension, rotation, and that's it. We need more neurons to move the hand than, more, than neurons to move the muscles of the back. And in the same way, this is the motor map and this is the sensory map. For the sensory area, it works in the same way. It's divided in different regions, different areas, according to the number of neurons that we have to get all the stimuli or sensations from the body. The premotor cortex, what is that for? The premotor cortex is a place where we plan the movements. 
This is the place where we program, learn, pattern, motor skills. Like if you learn how to play a musical instrument, learn to play the, how to play the guitar. These are the movements that you learn by repetition. Where the premotor cortex helps to plan, program, and establish circuits, and then order to the primary cortex to perform those movements. Broca's area is a very important area because that's the area of speech. It controls muscles of speech, the tongue, mouth, the larynx. Everything that works in the speech movements is controlled in the Broca's area. This Broca's area is compromised in some people with stroke. Sometimes we see people with stroke that are unable to speak but not because they don't know they lost the sense of language. They know and they think they know what they have to, they want to say, but they are unable to articulate the words. They think about saying something, but they are not able to say it. The speech muscles are not working. And the frontal eye field, as the name says, it controls movement of the eyes. And also the movement of the eyes, the muscles around the eyeballs, they are very precise, accurate movements, very fine movements. That's why we need more neurons for that purpose. Regarding the sensory areas, in the sensory areas, as we saw in the region, the map of the regions of the body, it works in the same way as the motor cortex. But here is where we receive or interpret the different sensations from our body. As the word says, conscious awareness of the sensation. We interpret the sensation. If something comes, we touch something hot. Without a stimulus, word travels in our axons as action potentials. And when they get to the neurons of the sensory area, those neurons interpret that. And we have the conscious awareness that is hot, and we interpret that. Parietal, temporal, occipital lobe, insula, they are also connected to the sensory areas to provide input. And there are different areas for sensations. The primary area which receives everything, there's an association cortex which performs connections in, with other neurons. And all the rest, visual, auditory, vestibular, olfactory, gustatory, visceral, sensory, they come from different receptors. From the eyes, visual, from the ears, auditory areas. So the areas of the brain that receive the signals coming from each of the spatial senses. So the primary sensory cortex is in the post-central gyrus of the parietal lobe. Is in the parietal lobe, post-central gyrus. And it receives every information, all information from the skin, proprioceptors, all the muscles, joints, tendons, to inform about the position of our body, degree of movement, muscular tone. We are able to discriminate objects by determining the shape of the object, what's in the top, what's in the bottom, what's at behind, what's in front.
And this can be understood, like uh, you close your eyes and get some object and start touching it and you can tell what it is. That is a function of the sensory area. Now, that involves association areas because you need to remember the shape, the texture, the consistency of the object, which you are getting everything with your hands, receptors of the skin. But the sensory area, the primary area and association area will take care of this and interpret that. That's called spatial discrimination. And again, we see for the sensory area, the sensory map, post-central gyrus, parietal lobe. Association is posterior, association cortex, somatosensory association cortex is located posterior to the primary association or somatosensory cortex. And this is where we perform understanding objects, determine the size, texture, relationship of the parts. And then as we can perhaps, and then connect to memory, we remember the objects that we have touched before, and then we get the sense and be conscious of what we are touching. Visual areas, they are located in the occipital lobe. Visual occipital lobe. And there is also association area, visual association area, which is usually right next to the main area in the occipital lobe. Some people, when they have a, they hit their heads in the occipital bone, they have a concussion, which is a temporal, a temporal uh, uh, loss of function of that cortex, and they, they get blind. They get blind. They hit the occipital bone, occipital lobe. They have a concussion, a temporal loss of that function. Visual areas in the occipital lobe, and that's why. But then if it's a concussion, it will just be recovered. The function will be recovered uh, time after. Auditory areas, the primary area in the temporal lobe and an association area where we keep memories of sounds and interpret the sounds accordingly. Vestibular cortex is for balance. It's in the insula and parietal cortex. And that's where the signals related to the equi equilibrium and position of the body get um, to the cortex. Olfactory cortex all the sensations coming from the olfactory sense and they arrive to the temporal lobe. Gustatory from the taste, receptors of the tongue, and the insula deep to the temporal lobe. In an area called visceral, visceral sensory area posterior to the gustatory cortex. This receives perception or allows conscious perception of visceral sensations, like when we have an upset stomach or we feel the urinary bladder full, all the signals will come and be interpreted there in the uh, posterior to the gustatory cortex and the insula, insula and temporal lobe.
And all these areas are here. All these areas are here, the ones that we have described. They are separated by, let's say, the taste, the vision, hearing. For vision, we say we have primary visual cortex and association area, which is right next to it. Taste, gustatory cortex is in the insula, it's deep. Auditory cortex for hearing, temporal lobe with its association area right next to it. Lateralization. What is lateralization? Lateralization is uh, that characteristic to that we described as that characteristic of the hemispheres to divide the function. How can they divide the function? Well, in the development, it seems that some neurons get specialized in a particular function, like hemispheres take care of different functions, and one of them is specialized in something. Language, for instance. 90% of humans have the language in the left hemisphere. And if it is in the left hemisphere, that means that the left hemisphere controls the right side of the body. So that is reflected in most of the people being right-handed because that's like the vision of the world that we have. The left hemisphere controls the right side of the body and the right side of the body becomes the dominant side. The left hemisphere, and these are the division of the functions, the neurons of the left hemisphere seems to have more dominance for language, math, and logics. In the right hemisphere, neurons, they seem to have more participation in these functions, like visual spatial skills, intuition, emotion, artistic and musical skills for perception of art and music. Now, this is just, this is just a description of which of the hemispheres are dominant in some functions. That doesn't mean that there are people that have, that they work uh, more with one or other hemispheres. Because when we listen to music, the auditory areas, of course, are active, but the whole cerebral cortex of both hemispheres are working at the same time. That's what we say. Hemispheres communicate both for integration. As we said at the beginning, when the cerebral cortex works, when the brain works, every, all cerebral cortex is working. It's not that I just do my right cerebral hemisphere when I listen to music, or when I do math, my left brain is working. All your brain is working at the same time. This is just a division of some functions that we call dominance.
white matter. The white matter is described as containing axons and axons that are myelinated. Well, these axons are organized in tracts, tracts in bundles, as we say here, myelinated fibers, bundle into large tracts. And they have specific names. They are classified in different types of fibers. They are called association fibers, commissural fibers, and projection fibers. So there are three types of uh, fibers, white matter, that we find in the cerebrum. The association fibers are defined as those fibers, those axons that connect different parts of the same hemisphere. Commissural fibers, they connect the gray matter of two hemispheres, so from the right to the left, from the right, left to the right. Those are commissural fibers. And the third type, projection fibers, they connect hemispheres to other areas of the brain, lower brain, maybe the brain stem, or spinal cord. Three types of fibers in the white matter, association fibers, commissural, and projection fibers. Now we see them like this. Association fibers within hemisphere. We see the red lines connecting different parts in the same hemisphere. Commissural fibers in between both hemispheres, from right to left, left to right. And this is seen as part of one structure that we call corpus callosum. It is white matter. It contains fibers that connect both hemispheres, right to left, left to right. And the projection fibers, which connect the cortex to lower areas of the brain, like brainstem or spinal cord, and we see them coming down. Now, if you see here in the picture of the brain, this is a frontal section. You see the white matter, but you don't see the lines of the fibers. It's all white. It's all white. How do we know? Well, we know by different studies that have been done and looking for the connections and correlations, and they have established, oh, yeah, there is connection from here to here. And that is achieved by axons, by connections, and that's how we describe these three types of fibers. That's a different view of how we see these three types, association fibers, the same hemisphere, commissural fibers, both hemispheres, and projection fibers to lower parts of the brain and spinal cord. Some of these, they have specific names, especially the projection fibers, are called the corona radiata or internal capsule. Those are names that we give to specific tracts coming from the cerebral cortex and especially running down the spinal cord. Basal ganglia. Where are basal ganglia or basal nuclei? Well, these are 
central parts, central areas of gray matter, located in the very center, very central part of the brain. Basal nuclear ganglia are three. One of them is called the coated nucleus, the second is called the putamen, and the third, the globus pallidus. Now sometimes the coated nucleus plus the putamen is called the stratum. Uh, there are three of these structures well differentiated, the coated nucleus, the putamen, and globus pallidus. They are structures or neurons, they contain neurons that will work coordinated with coordinating functions with the diencephalon and with the midbrain. And in a picture we can see it like this. Coated nucleus, putamen, And this cannot be seen from outside. We have to make sections. We have to make sections in order to see these basal nuclei, which are seen in the very central part. What are they for? They are important neurons. They coordinate functions like muscle movements, cognition, emotion, stereotype movements. They filter out incorrect responses and inhibit antagonistic unnecessary movements. For example, this disease called Parkinson's, which is the tremor or shaking that some people have, and it's completely unconscious, they cannot control it. Why is that? Because this basal nuclear works together with midbrain, diencephalon, all the circuit of neurons. Some part of that circuit is affected and as we say, the function of this is inhibit unnecessary movements. So all of us have orders coming from the cerebral cortex to move muscles, different muscles, but some of them are inhibited because we don't want that. In this case, what happens is those movements or those orders are not controlled. They are not inhibited. And that's why people have this. So every one of us have this, but we can control it. We don't show it. They are inhibited by these neurons. But if these neurons are destroyed or damaged, then these movements appear. And sometimes maybe a stereotype movements, very slow, different types of patterns of movements. Huntington's disease is another one that it's very similar to this, to the Parkinson. And that's how we see this nuclei in the very center of the, of the cerebrum. Putamen, globus pallidus, the head of the caudate nucleus, and the tail of the caudate nucleus. All these structures are uh, the basal nuclei. And here we can see them in terms of gray matter and white matter. Diencephalon. The diencephalon contains it's gray matter, and it contains three structures, the thalamus, hypothalamus, and epithalamus. All of them are surrounding the third ventricle. They are in the very central part of the brain also.
here we see the thalamus, which is this area, this oval part, hypothalamus, which is under the thalamus, and the epithalamus which is this little portion right here behind the thalamus. All these three parts are what we call diencephalon. What about the thalamus? Gray matter, 80% of the diencephalon. They are interconnected, left side and right side. And many nuclei, many, many neurons are located here. They connect to the cerebral cortex and to other areas of the brain. What is going on in the thalamus? The thalamus is relay station for information. It's like everything arriving to the thalamus. All sensations from the receptors and special senses, they all arrive to the thalamus. And from the thalamus, it is distributed to different areas of the cortex. Sorting addition, relay of these signals coming from hypothalamus related to emotions, cerebellum and basal nuclei to control movements of the muscles, memory or sensory integration, all sensations from the body. Hypothalamus, it is under the thalamus, and the nuclei, the nuclei here in the hypothalamus, meaning the neurons, they are also many and they take care of different functions. One of the things important about the hypothalamus is that it is connected to a gland called the pituitary gland, which is part of the endocrine system. But here is where we see the connection of nervous system and endocrine system. This hypothalamus and pituitary gland. Here we see this picture of the hypothalamus, of that small area under the thalamus. And it contains many nuclei. They are named according to the positions on lateral, medial, central, anterior, posterior, and so. And we see the connection with the pituitary gland. There is a stalk and a fundibulum that connects to the pituitary gland. What about the hypothalamus? Is the main visceral control homeostasis, meaning that here the neurons, they determine the set point for blood pressure, heartbeat, digestive functions, pupil size. In homeostasis, uh, the beginning, we studied this, how this works, input processing center and uh, output or response. And we have a set point, like the temperature, normal temperature of the body. Well, that is set up here in the hypothalamus. The rate, the heart rate that is set up here in the hypothalamus. And the limbic system, which is the emotional part of the brain, is also connected to the hypothalamus. Input that involves sensations of pleasure, fear, rage, sex drive, arrive to the hypothalamus. Regulation of the body temperature, 
hunger and satiety in response to the nutrients, amount of nutrients, water balance, thirst, and the regulation of sleep and wake cycles. All that is controlled by these neurons in the hypothalamus. And, as we said, it is connected to the pituitary gland. It is controlling some endocrine functions. Pituitary gland and production of some hormones, some hormones that will be studied in the endocrine system. Yes? Is it true that um, when you're thirsty and you're hungry, it's the same uh, sen sensor to let you know that sometimes if you're thirsty, if you think you're hungry, you're probably thirsty? That's right, because both centers are in the hypothalamus. They are separated neurons, but they are interconnected. And that's why sometimes the satiety also, the sensation of being full, can be achieved by drinking water. You're hungry, you drink water, you feel full. And you can block that sensation of hunger that you have. Because there's interconnection between these nuclei in the hypothalamus. The both are controlled in the hypothalamus. And the epithalamus the epithalamus is more posterior and it contains a gland which is called a pineal gland or pineal body. This pineal gland secretes a neurotransmitter called melatonin. The melatonin regulates the cycles of sleep and wake. How? The light impresses our retina, the daylight. That's a stimulus to the retina. The retina is connected to brainstem and then finally to the pineal gland. So when the pineal gland receives the input of light or daylight, it will not produce melatonin. But when it gets dark at night, there's no daylight. Our retina does not receive that and the pineal gland starts producing melatonin. And what's the effect of the melatonin? Relaxation. That is a nice feeling that we get like on 10 p.m., 11 p.m., we feel the day's over and it's time for going to bed. You feel relaxed, you feel quiet. That's melatonin being secreted because it's not daylight, it's night, it's nighttime. You're supposed to go to, to have some rest. So that's important about the melatonin and pineal gland. This is how we see in the real brain. As I said, next week I'm gonna bring some of the brains from the lab and uh, you're gonna uh, see some of them are cut in this way, a sagittal section. So we can um, uh, see this. And I think this is the last one. Questions, comments?